Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after a weekend of protests in Ottawa, can we still call this a trucker protest after what's taken place? And what have they really accomplished? Well, today is also reopening day for many businesses here in Ontario, but amid the frequent closures that have put pressure on staffing, food supply chains, and limited revenue, what's the outlook for restaurants in 2022? And the U.S. and Russia are set to square off today at the U.N. Security Council over Ukraine. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So far, there have been no arrests uh, for incidents of physical violence during the anti-vaccine demonstration that's going on on Parliament Hill, uh, prompting many media reports to describe the protests as, quote-unquote, peaceful. But activists and academics and observers up in the nation's capital say that's really an inaccurate characterization, undermining the fear, the damage, and the disruption caused by this multi-day rally. Laurie Paris has some details. Fareed Khan, the founder of Canadians United Against Hate, describes the protests as a threat to political stability and peace-loving Canadians, noting the demonstrations don't have to come to blows to jeopardize public safety. He says some protesters have refused to wear masks in indoor venues, suggesting the mass gathering could become a COVID-19 super-spreader event that would have deadly consequences far beyond those who attended it. He adds the public response to this weekend's demonstrations exposes a racist double standard in civil resistance, suggesting protests advocating for the rights of those who are black, indigenous, or people of color have faced much harsher opposition for causing far less disruption. Laurie Paris, The Canadian Press. So let's get a read on that and uh, some other things going on. By the way, it's uh, also uh, noteworthy that uh, RMPs go back to work today uh, in the nation's capital, and uh, there's a number of things we want to talk about there. And to do all of this, uh, please to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you with us on the program today. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Let's uh, let's start off with uh, with the uh, the protest that's going on there. Uh, I hesitate to even call it a truckers' protest. I know there's a lot of trucks there, but as we talked about last week, it seems as if this whole thing is uh, this exercise has been co-opted uh, by some extremists who are still hanging around in the capital. Uh, the, the, I guess the overriding question anytime we see a demonstration like this is, uh, did they accomplish their stated goals? Uh, what, what is, what's your read on this? Yeah. Um, so go, like going back to, to the, the kind of the original part of your question, I would hesitate to even call this a protest at this point. Um, it is not very clear what the, the goals of this thing are with respect to the policies of the federal government. I mean, as you say, I think this is completely spun away from any real, um, you know, th- like this isn't a trucker thing. This is um, a lot of people who are very angry <laughs> on Parliament Hill. And not all of them, I guess, you know, are, are angry. Some of them are there and they aren't, you know, necessarily totally disruptive. They're, pe- people are walking around, um, you know, like it's, it's not, ev- everyone there is not doing the same thing. But there absolutely is um, a very, like, like the people who call it peaceful, I'm like, what are you talking about? This isn't peaceful. People are screaming, no masks, um, you know, store clerks are being intimidated, in some cases harassed, public property is being destroyed. Um, you know, it, it's just unbelievable. And so what in the world is the purpose of this um, disruption and making people feel unsafe? And so I don't think this has any policy goal whatsoever. And if it ever did, I think it has been completely undermined and nothing will be accomplished here except some kind of destruction. Well, you know, this was supposed to be a coast-to-coast rally, you know, for truckers, and it was supposed to be 
the initial stated goal was uh, was their protest against the idea about uh, the vaccination mandate for truckers that need to go across the border. But I, by the time these guys reached the Alberta border, that that was gone. I mean, th- this whole thing had changed. Yeah. It just became an anti-government, anti-vax rally, and and a, a number of folks. I mean, we've talked about some of the people that are involved in this. There are white supremacist groups. Uh, you saw yes. swastikas on some of the Canadian flags uh, over the weekend. Uh, I'm not thinking the, uh, those aren't truckers. Those are just people that decided, hey, this is as good a time as any uh, to just go in there and do what we usually do at protests like this. Absolutely. And like yesterday, um, I didn't I didn't go anywhere on Saturday, but on Sunday I drove um, from the outskirts of town down the 417 right in like kind of around the downtown area. And there were lots of cars clearly on their way to the hill. Um, No no truckers like, you know, at that point it was just like, you know, there were small trucks, there were cars. Um, You you almost like from that level, like there's there's no discernible attachment to trucking whatsoever. As you say, this started off as as a protest, as a as a debate, as a resistance to the idea of mandatory vaccines for truckers that are cr- going cross border, and so I mean, I, I would never suggest that people who oppose government measures shouldn't say so. Of course, they should, and there's people all over the world, you know, saying that that the, the types of measures that we've embarked on to try to manage COVID nineteen you know, should be reconsidered at this point. And, you know, there, there are jurisdictions that are doing that. And there's nothing wrong with suggesting that Canada should do the same. We are all sick to death of this whole thing. It's been almost two years now. The problem is is the other messaging that you were talking about, the white supremacy, the racism, the, the, the intimidation, the harassment. They stole from people, not I shouldn't say they, is it? it's all of them, but some stole from a homeless shelter. Like, come on. And so, you know, I, I, I will not call this a protest. It's, it's not even that. Yeah, that's I, I took exception to the, uh, the, the terminology here of a peaceful protest. Uh, uh, we've talked to some of the media folks that are covering this. And by the way, they're being spat upon and, and, and yelled at and I chased know, away. Uh, so much for freedom of the press, I suppose. You know, <laughs> you, 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 we, we, we want a free pre- independent press as long as they print what we want them to print. I, guys, just think about what you're doing here. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, you're right. The, uh, the I mean, the soup kitchen thing was just disgraceful. I mean, first of all, oh, taunting right. the people that work there and then uh, taking food that was meant for the, the homeless in Ottawa. And then, of course, let's let's talk about the cenotaph, uh, you know, desecrating the cenotaph. When I mentioned on my commentary this morning, I mean, I don't know if they understood the fact that that cenotaph there is is out of respect for the people that fought and died for Canada so that they could have yeah. the freedom to protest. Yes. Uh, and and instead they desecrate this thing. The police told us there's, there's somebody was urinating on it. Uh, oh, this is yeah. if they really and truly think this is the sort of thing that's going to make government change their policy. What, what where is their? I, I just don't see where their heads are at. Oh, exactly. And I mean, regardless, I think of where one stands on Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government, the last thing any of us want would want would be for the Prime Minister to see to be you know giving in anything, you know, to to this like absolutely not. And I mean. They never would have anyway. The, the government was never going to change the vaccine mandate for truckers. And even if they had, the U.S. wasn't going to change theirs. And so it would have accomplished nothing. And so, like, I, I really think that the point of all of this is to be disruptive and to frighten people. And Ottawa is, is like, I mean, downtown anyway, is just on lockdown now. And there's this this suggestion today that there's going to be a maskless shopping event. Like, where is the accountability for these people's behavior? This is absolutely not acceptable and people are going to get hurt. Like, and even if no one gets, gets physically hurt, which some people have, like people are afraid to leave their houses, people who are trying to go to work because in today, as you know, is the day that um, restaurants can open at, at half capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, 
who's going to be able to do that in Ottawa and do it safely? And so even that, you know, the businesses who have been struggling to stay alive during this, you know, this mess, and they finally see a light at the end of the tunnel, because, you know, I think we can, I hope, see that there's, there's, you know, we're coming to the end of this Omicron thing soon. And now, you know, they're going to be set back again. And why would anybody want that? It's just crazy. Let's talk about the political implications of this. Uh, the Prime Minister, we, well, we don't know where he was. We just know he was in a safe place. I'm yeah. sure, assuming that was done at the uh, at the request of security experts because there was a, a concern about them storming uh, the Prime Minister's residence. There was always that. Aaron O'Toole mm-hmm. met with them apparently on Friday. Uh, not in the downtown core, I guess, but we don't know, quite know where. But he's not the only Conservative member uh, that has uh, embraced uh, this this protest. Is there a political price to pay for this? I mean, this has got to be a gamble. Every time a politician takes a side on an issue like this, uh, there usually is some sort of a pushback. Yeah, exactly. And I think they're they're trying to be somewhat clever about it. Like, yes, as you say, Aaron O'Toole was not actually on the Hill. Michael Cooper was. And as everybody knows now, he, you know, he has been caught in that photo with a flag with a swastika in the background. And he's trying to distance himself from that. But you know what? Like, I don't think you can play this two ways. If you're there, you know what's there. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you you personally are involved in any of this hateful behavior. But when you see people behaving like that, you have a choice to make about whether you want to associate with that. And so I don't think that it's like, I mean, I, I don't, I can't imagine that this is a politically smart thing for the conservatives. I think they are trying um, to, in some ways, uh, you know, for a while, I don't, I don't totally know what everybody's been saying this morning, but for a while over the weekend, you know, you heard people like Michael Cooper say like, oh, these are ordinary Canadians and, you know, kind of out here showing support for what they think is right. Okay, well, this has absolutely, you know, transformed into a mess if it was ever about anything ordinary. And I think that the more that the Conservatives try to align themselves with parts of this, but not all of it, it's going to be very, very difficult to do that, right? Like, and, and especially as, you know, what's going to happen today when Parliament comes back our conservatives, you know, like there was conservatives out bringing coffee and donuts. Are they going to do that today too? When MPs are having a hard time getting to the Hill, if they even get there, like, I don't know. I think today's a game changer where we see what's going to happen when parliament tries to open. Well, and who are they playing to? Uh, you know, I, I saw Mr. Cooper's comments. These are ordinary Canadians. I mean, this Angus Reid poll on Friday, I guess it was, uh, suggested that only about 28% of Canadians even support what they were doing. And that's before they got to the Hill. So I don't know if that right. number's gone up or down. I suspect it's gone down. I, it's diminished uh, after they saw the, 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 the characterization and the behavior of some of the people uh, in the downtown core. So I, I don't see the winner here. If they're looking for to score political points, you know, with their, their extreme right-wing base, those people are there already. I mean, they're probably some of them are in the crowd. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maxime Bernier was in the crowd. And I wondered at one point whether um, they're trying to get, you know, some some of the PPC vote that they think they lost in the last election. But I mean, this is very dangerous. And Aaron O'Toole is the leader of the opposition. Like we even though he's not the prime minister, he plays a very significant role in, in politics in Canada. And we expect leadership from him every I mean, whether you you vote conservative or not. And so I think it's going to be really hard for him to explain what he was thinking this weekend. And, and as you mentioned, they're back to work today. Um, and you can imagine there's probably going to be some sort of discussion where I uh, told this morning that the prime minister is going to make a public statement about 1115 this morning. And I assume this has got to be about this and, uh, and what's going to be happening and the impact it's going to have. Uh, do you get the sense that the crowd is dissipated? I saw some people on, on social media over the weekend uh, who are intending that, or some who support it, say there were 500,000 people there. 
Uh, I've heard about 10,000 maximum on Saturday. Uh, and, and that's an estimate. They remember they used uh, radio photography uh, from up above to try to make that determination. Uh, they're always going to argue about this, but uh, it's, it's back to work for some people. Is the city still going to be crippled? Or there, there, can you, you know, look out from your window there and think maybe things are going to get a little bit better today and progressively better through the week? Well, yesterday in the morning, it's it was like the crowds, like in the earlier part of the day, the crowds were definitely less on the hill. And even, you know, a lot of the photos that you could see comparing for, to Saturday, like it, it was definitely fewer people. But by the end of the day yesterday, like there were trucks blocking um you know, roads, right? So like there was totally jamming the downtown. And so I know that there was an effort to try to direct some of the flow out of the downtown area. So they had cut off, like, you know, if you know Ottawa, like the Metcalf exit on the, off the 417 into, into the, the heart of downtown, they had cut that off. And so that may have had some effect, but by the end of the day yesterday, the city was still completely jammed. Well, it's it's unfortunate, and, and, and I take exception to people that are, you know, waving around Canadian flags with swastikas on them. Uh, and, you know, and, and screaming F the Trudeau, the pr- people or the prime minister or whatever it is. Uh, and they call themselves patriots. I'll, I'll juxtapose that against the crowd that was at Tim Hortons Field yesterday. It's not a, Can- a lot of Canadian flags there. Uh, <laughs> and and yes. none of them upside down, by the way. None of them had swastikas on them. And I'm sure of the uh, the people that attended that soccer match, uh, I'm sure a lot of them are pretty sick and tired of the COVID restrictions, too. Oh, but, exactly. You know, there's a time and a place for this, and there's a way in which to do it. And, uh, and it, I, I just... I'm, I'm flabbergasted that these guys actually think that they're going to make a point. I, uh, to your point, though, Laurie, I mean, in my commentary this morning, I said, you know, when you look back on this weekend, I paraphrased uh, Shakespeare. This was, a, you know, uh, a weekend of, of fury and, and, and thunder signifying nothing. Uh, they haven't yeah. accomplished anything here except really put themselves in a negative light. And I fear also putting people in the trucking industry in a negative light. And that's not really fair. It's not fair at all. And I know, you know, the Canadian Trucking Alliance has been, really vocal about the fact that they're you know this this is not truckers like this is not you know that this is not what's happening here at all but i i absolutely take your point because it's it started off as we said right like it's it kind of this whole this has snowballed into something very very different but it started off with this resistance to the vaccine mandate for truckers and by the way you know as we know 90 percent of truckers are vaccinated and so it's the the trucking piece we really have to to, to can that terminology altogether because it's not what this is about at all yeah, well, somebody should tell Elon Musk that too, uh, mm-hmm. and a few other folks that branded. I mean, anyway, and I, again, I don't know too many people who sway their opinion based on what Russell Brand says either. So, but I guess some people <laughs> have to get their two cents worth in. Stay well, Laurie. Thanks so much you for too. the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Maybe get into some of the politics of Ottawa when we get some time. We get this thing cleared up. Let's do it. Thanks, Bill. Okay, take care, Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pivotal day here in Ontario. Uh, this is, a well, we move into first phase of the reopening plan that uh, Premier Doug Ford talked about uh, just a little while ago. Uh, and it's uh, wide-reaching, as a matter of fact. Uh, we can talk about the medical aspect of this, and we will, because uh, we're told now a lot of hospitals are going to start booking some of the uh, medical procedures and surgeries that they've been putting off. Non-urgent surgeries, of course, have been put on hold try to preserve capacity. But I also, in this segment, I want to talk a little bit about what's the impact this is having on, on the economic strife that uh, so many small businesses are dealing with these days and whether or not uh, this is going to help. Uh, some are suggesting that even the measures that are put in place today don't go far enough given the challenges that small businesses are facing. To talk about this, please to welcome back to the program, Mohamed Faki, who is the owner and founder of Paramount Fine Foods. Uh, Mohamed, pleasure to have you back on the show. First and foremost, uh, your thoughts on, on what's happening today 
and the impact it's going to have on, well, let's talk about the restaurant business. Thank you very much, Bill, for having me on. And look, we've been all through another difficult few weeks. All of us, all of us trying to get through yet another wave of COVID. For the last 22 months, we have lost a lot of restaurants. I'm very proud to be on the board of Restaurant Canada. And I, I'm as well with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. So yes, definitely with these opening half measures, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm happy that we start coming back to kind of normal and welcoming people. But that's only half of the story because people need to feel safe to come out. And not only us being ready to serve them, we've been always ready to serve them safely. But it's been very difficult for small business and especially the restaurant industry. 260,000 employees left the industry for good because simply we kept opening, closing, and that did not give them what we all need from a job is security. And a lot of small businesses has taken on a lot of the new debts, 70, 80,000 at least by average for very small businesses and much more for a slightly mid-sized or bigger businesses. And those deaths kept accumulating and being delayed. And now it's becoming a problem. So a lot of people won't make it now. And the only way they will, if we come out and support them. Well, and we're hoping people are going to do that. Uh, I, I want to include in our conversation here, uh, not just the fact that we're reopening, but uh, some of the comments from uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, who's the chief medical officer. And he talked about this. And there's a, a, a catchphrase that he used here, Mohammed, that I know that you've talked about in the past. Dr. Moore said, I think we absolutely have to start to understand that we have to learn to live with this virus. In other words, it's never going to go away. So let's let's get back to what we consider to be normal and take all the necessary precautions. <laughs> and I'm glad Dr. Moore said that, but you've been saying that for about two years now, haven't you? <laughs> and even more, the restaurant industry started doing the traceability before anyone else. For two yeah. years, I've been, I've been saying, let's try to live with it safely, like minimize risk and maximize safety, but live with it. And it doesn't have to be all the way not caring about it or taking measures, but restaurant restaurateur and small businesses have spent a lot of money on PPE, plexiglass, uh, you know, ventilation. We've done it all. Like I, I literally have uh, every single employee, if they agree to, to do a rapid test every single day, at a certain point, it was sold in the black market for 25 to $30 bill for one test, like for each test, like every shift would cost me even $900 to open up the door. But we still wow. did that to maintain people safe, but we wanted to convince the government Let's live with it, but they couldn't get convinced because they skipped go to the small businesses. <laughs> like Costco's piled up with people. Uh, malls are open, but yet a restaurant that demands vaccination at the door that has rapid tests available, that has plexiglass, that maintains their table six feet apart is not open. You know, it was a bit of political theater, yet we were and we're still ready to be a great partner and do whatever it takes to maintain people safe. But let's live with it. If enough is enough. If we see Europe opening, I have businesses, as you know, Bill, in, Hamil uh, in Hamilton, but I do have businesses in the UK. And I have businesses yep. in Mississauga and I have businesses in, 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 in Beirut. And those businesses are open, restrictions are, are gone, and people are coming and sitting down and enjoying meals safely. Why can't we do it here? How do you get 
that confidence though, Mohammed? How do you, and that's a two sided question because I'm talking about, first of all, consumer confidence. You want people to come into the restaurant, but to get staff to come back too. And as you said, a lot of them have left the industry. They found other employment and uh, they're, they're not coming back, but you've got to fill those vacancies, which means again, you have to instill that sense of confidence. So you, the challenges here are immense. Well, I mean, look, uh, it's very difficult with asking employee to come back, but yet we leave them at home. And the trick comes if what do you what's more the most important for you? And I've always operated all my businesses, uh, either in the restaurant business, I'm um, as well in the roofing business. I mean, I own a couple other small businesses. I operated under the culture people come first. And if your people really come first, then you can't have that up and down for them. So you need to really do a top up for them. So if you lay them off temporary, give them a top top up of a couple hundred dollars every week. So they're not feeling, you know, the heavy weight of, of, of the pandemic and the closure and, and them sitting at home and can't make it to pay the rent and their food and feed their family. Because you can't call them your family member. You can't call them your team and then leave them as soon as the problem happens. But on the other side, it's very difficult for a small business to do that because they don't simply have the cash flow. So you have to balance yourself and a lot of sleepless night. I'm hearing it from a lot of members in the restaurant Canada, a lot of small businesses. They want to do the right thing. Look, the intention is to do the right thing. And small businesses hire newcomers, hire uh, younger people, hire our children on their first job, especially restaurants. So they need and deserve the government support and our support. And it seems like the government feel like, oh, we've given you enough for throwing money at people that don't deserve. That's not true. That doesn't apply to small business and it does not apply to restaurant. It applies to people that actually give dividend and profit to their shareholder in the middle of the pandemic and they were receiving help. So I've asked for two years that the help to be uh, targeted. But the truth is we don't need help if you let us open and live with it safely. So we need we needed to make a decision, all of us, you want to shut us down? We're not looking for a handout. We're looking for a hand up because we want to be a good partner. But when you do that, why are you always ready to do that without being prepared to help? Because these businesses represent the dreams of families and represent the, the ability of paying fee for their children to go to university. We can't just take them away and, and, <laughs> and keep the bills built. And to every landlord out there, you know, I'm a landlord myself and I'm a tenant myself. Please, to all the landlords out there, be kind, get real, you know, be patient on these tenants. They're not going anywhere. They put money into your unit, your unit you own, no one's going to take it away from you, but their business that they're paying rent, landlords are taking away from these small businesses. So just back off, be kind after a pandemic, give them a month or two to pay because they have so much debt and Mm -hmm. you can help them to balance. Mohammed, I hope this is the first step in that healing process that has to happen in the industry. I thank you so much. Good luck uh, with all of your endeavors and for everybody else uh, that's uh, that's reopening uh, to a certain extent anyway. And here's hoping that, uh, that this is going to be a smooth transition. Thanks, for, as always, for the time today, Mohammed. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Bill. And to everyone listening to me, come out, take your family, take your loved one to a restaurant, support them because they need your support and enjoy it. You deserve it, too. Absolutely. Well, we've already made our reservations for later this week, my wife and I. Mohammed Faki, owner and founder of uh, Paramount Foods. And uh, thanks again, Mohammed. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
want to focus on a, a global conflict that's causing a great deal of consternation uh, right around the world. The United States and Russia will be squaring off at the UN Security Council over Ukraine now, with uh, Washington calling Moscow's actions a threat to international peace and security, and the Kremlin, well, just saying this whole thing's a PR stunt. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, talks uh, to us now about what's going to be happening. First of all, Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you back on the program today. Good morning. They've moved the the battle, I guess, uh, from the telephone conversations that uh, Anthony Blinken and, and the uh, Russian Foreign Secretary are having to the United Nations. Uh, is there any anticipation at all that there's going to be any progress made in this? Uh, likely not. Uh, I mean, this is a big deal in that this is the highest profile arena that this kind of, you know, talks towards a diplomatic end has moved into over the last couple of weeks. But uh, right off the bat, the Russian Federation immediately tried to simply end uh, the meeting and say that it was unnecessary uh, with China falling in line with that. Both of the uh, both members, uh, permanent members on the U.N. Security Council saying that, you know, this needs not to happen. Let's have kind of quiet diplomacy behind a closed door, not with the spectacle of TV cameras and the rest of the world watching. Ultimately, that was something that, that didn't go forward. And we've been hearing uh, from a number of the members, the Russian Federation speaking right now, uh, and again, to what you had just said, calling this a PR stunt, uh, saying that there is, quote unquote, no proof that Russia is planning any military action against Ukraine, simply again trying to say that this is a manufactured story by the West, uh, you know, to try and drum up fear within Ukraine and push back on, on Russia's sovereignty. So, you know, already at the beginning of this meeting, we could see where it was going to go. But, and I, I, I understand that that's the, the talking point and that that's what they're going to stick by. That's understandable. But to my knowledge, Reggie, there's been no under, er, explanation at all than why Russian troops are amassing the Ukraine border then. Uh, you know, and they, they talk about sovereignty, but you know what is missing from that sentence is they 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 anticipate and they believe that Russia uh, has hold over Ukraine. You know, they they want to. Putin's been quite, I guess, blunt about this. He wants to recreate the uh, the Soviet Union once again, and Ukraine's right in his crosshairs, aren't they? Yeah, and look, this is what experts have been talking about, in that if Russia is to ultimately invade, if they are to be successful uh, into walking into a sovereign country and trying to lay down their own flag, that this poses a threat not only towards Ukraine, but to those that are on the border with Ukraine and further into Europe, uh, as, as Russia, as you rightly say, tries to kind of go back to the, to the bygone days of uh, the USSR. Uh, but, you know, that's what we're hearing from Russia, uh, from their uh, ambassador to the United Nations today saying that, you know, Russia and Ukraine are still essentially one country. They share a similar language. They share uh, similar uh, similarities when it comes to um, uh, religion and when it comes to uh, kind of domestic uh, issues. Uh, and, and this is where Russia is really trying to put their foot down to say, stop trying to get in the way. Stop trying to get in the way of us going back to, you know, those years of where we used to wield some kind of power and influence over Russia. And this is why there has been such strong pushback, not just from NATO, uh, but from the United States quite vocally saying that Russia needs to kind of back away uh, from the line. The president and the White House putting a statement out not more than five or ten minutes ago saying that if diplomacy doesn't move forward, Russia is going to bear, quote, the responsibility and that it is going to face swift and severe consequences. This is the White House narrative. This is coming out of the U.K. This is coming out of NATO. The problem is that it's not standing in the way of what Russia is doing, and its troops are still amassed at the border. The only person, Bill, who knows what's going to happen next is Vladimir Putin. 
Uh, and as you mentioned, the uh, the Chinese government has fallen in on side with uh, the Russian stance on this too. Another uh, Chinese foreign minister uh, suggesting that there is no evidence that uh, that Russia wants a war. And and I suppose on the surface, Reggie, that sort of makes sense. But that doesn't mean they're not going to invade. Uh, they, I, they they just don't want anybody to stand in their way. That's precisely uh, that's precisely the issue here, uh, and and you know it's not it's not a surprise that China uh, is standing beside Russia. The two of them oftentimes can be politically aligned, despite the fact that they are so different from each other. Uh, but just you know earlier this morning at this meeting, China's ambassador to the United Nations said that essentially the West needs to abandon uh, that kind of Cold War mentality when dealing with Ukraine, when dealing with Russia, uh, saying that that is what's getting in the way uh, of diplomacy here. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when you have Ukraine being a sovereign nation with allies that are throughout the EU and throughout NATO, that really does just stand in the way of what Russia wants to do. And of course, China uh, is simply going to back that. So again, this is simply just an arena to bring this out full circle, full court to allow for the world to actually see what's going on. It provides Russia with uh, a platform to be able to push back on what the West uh, has been saying, and also to kind of broadcast back into Russia, uh, you know, some of the misinformation and the propaganda that they see on the regular about what's happening, uh, you know, at their border with Ukraine. I, I know that uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, of course, uh, had a conversation, a phone conversation with uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and he, I think the quote that you, that you were reporting said there was a distinct possibility Russia could begin an incursion sometime in February. <laughs> Is, is that based on, as, as the White House has responded to this, Reggie, is it based on data uh, that they have released? Do they have uh, any intelligence that indicates that's the case? Uh, okay, so this, this sounds vaguely familiar, as I saw one commentator mention over the weekend, uh, like George W. Bush's assertion about weapons of mass destruction, that this is imminent. And uh, we all know that that didn't have really have any, any solid basis, in fact. Uh, but the fact that the Russian troops are there, I, I guess at least some credibility to the president's statements. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's no intelligence that's been released publicly to kind of back up the stance of the White House uh, and the Biden administration that uh, there is some kind of imminent threat coming within the next matter of days. I mean, look, he said it was going to be in February. We're very quickly approaching February 1st here. Uh, and again, Russia is ultimately the one who are going to hold the cards here and decide whether or not they want to invade or whether or not this kind of escalates somewhere else outside of the realm of a ground war uh, and becomes uh, an issue more in uh, uh, cybersecurity and cyber warfare. Uh, uh, but again, going back to what Russia is doing with their troops uh, on the border, they simply say that this is their right as a nation to carry out um, uh, uh, activities that allow for it to be more prepared and more ready, simply saying that these are just military drills that are taking place uh, and that they are not a provocation and that these drills are simply just being drummed up by the West as something to watch out for. Minutes ago, Russia's ambassador made a comment to say that they never confirmed that they had 100,000 troops that were deployed near the border with Ukraine, despite the fact that there is uh, very clear satellite data uh, that shows such uh, a strong buildup. So you still have this kind of narrative coming out uh, of Russia that's being pushed back on by NATO, being pushed back on by Ukraine. But going back to that phone call that the president had uh, with the leader uh, of Ukraine, it is also worth pointing out here that you had kind of two different conversations being portrayed in one conversation, that of the United States saying, look, there is uh, an imminent threat on your border, and Ukraine pushing back and saying, whoa, whoa, maybe it's not all that much of an imminent threat. Please stop trying to spread panic throughout my country. And, and what's the what's the rationale behind Zelensky's comments like that to try to downplay this? I mean, it, it was just a few days before that that he was very concerned about a possible invasion and, and asking for help from NATO. 
Yeah, and and I think that part of the the issue here is that he worried that uh, that Ukraine's economy was likely going to potentially take a hit uh, if there was panic. Its markets, its dollar could be impacted uh, on these drummed up fears that there is something that's going to happen. Um, you know, video from within Ukraine over the last several days shows people trying to live their normal lives. It doesn't show uh, like there's some kind of imminent threat of war hanging uh, over top. And I think that's kind of what the sentiment of Zelensky was during that phone call with Ukraine by saying, look, if there is something happening at the border, we need to be able to deal with this. Uh, but simply don't hang that kind of cloud over the country that something bad is going to happen, especially if there is no ultimate proof and it's simply just kind of a, a wait and see game based upon what Russian President Putin has done with his military, uh, both within his country uh, and utilizing uh, Belarus uh, as well. Um, you know, it's still a game of wait and see. The White House says that that phone call went very well. It just wasn't the same kind of very well that we heard from Zelensky. What are you hearing about the, the message that's going back uh, to the Russian people? Uh, they're not oblivious to this. They understand that this is happening. I mean, they, they certainly knew what this was going on a couple of years ago with Ukraine and certainly with Crimea uh, before that. I mean, there are some reports that I'm hearing that suggesting that the Russians are basically saying that the, the massing of troops along the border is because they fear an invasion into Russia. Uh, is something like that, is that part of the messaging and is that actually a, a credible message that people in Russia would actually take? Well, I mean, look, the people in Russia are going to take the message that's being given to them by their, uh, you know, autocratic government by saying, look out for the West. They are the ones who are trying to come in uh, and rip apart the, the life that you have known uh, for X number of years. This is all about uh, a campaign within Russia to portray the West as being the instigators, as being the ones who are trying to poke the bear uh, and potentially start a war here, uh, which is why we see the spun messages outside of this, you know, whenever there's a conversation that takes place with a Western leader that portrays Russia in a much better light and shows, uh, you know, whether it's the EU, whether it's NATO, whether it's the United States, as being weak. Uh, and this is kind of how they try to, you know, indoctrinate the people within Russia uh, to show that their country is, uh, you know, ultimate and superior. Uh, and please watch out uh, for everyone else. That's why there is so much concern here uh, as to, you know, what the next steps uh, are going to be here, because for Russians, they believe that they are the ones who are under the threat uh, of an attack from the West, and, and Ukraine is simply just being used by the United States and by uh, NATO as a way to get into Russia. And, and all level-headed people are talking about de-escalation, and that's why I know the uh, uh, Irish ambassador to the UN, we should, by the way, mention uh, Ireland, uh, Ireland is there on a two-year term. That's the, 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 the spot on the Security Council Canada wanted a couple of years ago, and Ireland got it instead of them. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're calling for de-escalation as well. But who's going to be the broker here, Reggie? I know that uh, Boris Johnson's going to be visiting Ukraine tomorrow, uh, which is understandable, given some of the heat he's under in London these days. He just wants to get out of the country, I'm sure, for a few days. Uh, but remember, former Prime Minister Tony Blair tried to act as a broker for peace in the Middle East. Is Johnson trying to play the, the leadership role here? I mean, Johnson's trying to play a leadership role, but it's also worth pointing out that Tony Blinken is going to go back again with, uh, with uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, within 48 hours to also try to broker some kind of diplomatic end here. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, the, the, the um, officials from Russia and Ukraine meet with uh, officials in France who also tried to broker a deal uh, with French officials and with President Macron. I think that there is a uh, kind of a drummed up and large interest here uh, right across Europe and throughout North America and really right across the world to 
try and get uh, the situation to be de-escalated. I think ultimately what you're going to see here, though, is if this kind of talk uh, of diplomacy doesn't really go anywhere, you will start to see more increased conversations over uh, potentially catastrophic economic sanctions placed on not only uh, uh, Russian entities and Russian banks, but also potentially on Vladimir Putin himself, as we've heard from the White House. So diplomacy is one thing, but there is an opportunity here for the world to band together to go after the economy of Russia, which really would take a severe hit if these sanctions were pushed forward. It's something that Russia, uh, that uh, Ukraine rather, has been calling for. It's something that U.S. lawmakers uh, on a bipartisan basis are calling for. It's simply a matter of, again, wait and see. And what's the line that has to be crossed for, for President Biden to actually initiate uh, some of those economic sanctions? Does it have to come to the point of an invasion? Uh, or, or is there something else? Is there a timing to this that, that has to be uh, adhered to? Well, it's interesting because, you know, it's working its way through Congress right now what kind of series of sanctions uh, would be laid out. And President Biden said that he himself would drop sanctions personally uh, on President Putin if he did invade. But it's that if he does invade comment that really is starting to strike a chord here, especially back in Ukraine, where they say we need to not wait until something happens in order for a sanction to be levied. If they are provoking us, if they are potentially putting our sovereignty at risk here, there needs to be a preemptive strike by sanctions. And there was a letter that was sent to uh, the administration last week from the Zelensky government uh, administration uh, saying, look, please put a, a preemptive strike when it comes to sanctions or potentially go after Nord Stream 2 or lower the threshold for when these sanctions are going to take place, because ultimately Ukraine doesn't want to see uh, an invasion take place before the rest of the world is going to act. Uh, and you actually are seeing bipartisan support in the United States for some kind of preemptive strike on sanctions. We've seen notes come out that they would be going after people within Vladimir Putin's inner circle. Uh, again, it is just going to be a matter of when is this going to take place? Do they ultimately do this as a way to scare off Russia? Or do they simply wait until Russia goes in and then face criticism that it's potentially too late? Who's, somebody has to save face here. I mean, the Russians can't just withdraw. Uh, the United States, as you say, is, is threatening sanctions. And, and if they decide not to do that, uh, then they have to wear that as well. Uh, you, you just got to wonder, this is this is a staring contest right now. And I, I guess the question a lot of us are asking right now, Reggie, is who's going to blink first? Well, I mean, look, uh, you know, this very well could be a situation where Russia opts to move back. We've already seen reports within the last 24 hours that thousands, upwards of 10,000 troops, have already been pulled back from Russia's borders and sent back towards barracks kind of bolstering that Russian conversation that this was simply just military drills that were taking place, hoping that the United States winds up with egg on their face by saying, look, you, you made an assumption here that we were going after Ukraine and we were simply just carrying out uh, military drills. Is this something that could potentially go further? It's possible Russia could put back all of their troops and again kind of go after some kind of asymmetrical attack where everyone thinks it'll be land-based and then maybe Russia strikes somewhere else uh, in the world of cyber. Russia could back away. The United States could back away. I think that's why you're seeing uh, such a strong push here at the United Nations to get some kind of diplomatic resolution in place, or if China can get their way, taking this away from the public spotlight and bringing it back behind a closed door for quiet diplomacy. Ultimately, uh, you know, that's what Ukraine would like to see is this kind of end without any kind of uh, further escalation, because ultimately Ukraine would pay a price, but so too would the people on its borders and its allies. And just uh, to remind our listeners, as you've been reporting, uh, when you get to the UN Security Council, uh, both Russia and China have veto power, of course, so th there's not going to be a whole lot done at the Security Council. I mean, if, if the United States or any, uh, any other member country tried to do something about it, it would get quashed, I, I would think, in a heartbeat, Reggie. 
Yeah, absolutely, it would, and that was kind of uh, you know the fear and the understanding going in here is that you know this is simply a way to put the ideas and the issues on the table. But uh, the United States came out very quickly at the top of this meeting today and said, "Look, we are inviting Russia to the table. This is the opportunity for the Russian government to be able to kind of have a conversation with the West about what their concerns are and how we can de-escalate this in an appropriate fashion." But they made the point of saying, if Russia comes to the table and walks away, or if they simply don't come to the table at all, they know what the stakes are going to be. They understand what the consequences are going to be and how severe they could be. So while nothing may take place at the United Nations Security Council, NATO, the United States and beyond, they are already prepared to act if Russia decides to act. Very tenuous situation. Uh, We'll be watching for your reporting, of course, on Global National tonight and uh, for the next few nights on this. Reggie, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, watching what's going on at the Security Council and, of course, from the White House to see what's going to happen with Ukraine. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.